you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 11 to 16 this morning. For those who may be visiting today, we've been doing a study in the book of Timothy as we've been talking about different subjects related to how we are to be the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the faith. The sketch that you saw this morning was based on Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, if you will, from Matthew chapter 13. And it reminds us that there is a day coming when God will sort everything out. There is a harvest that's coming when God will separate the wheat and the weeds, or the chaff. Jesus said in that context, he said, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will uh, weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all that do evil. And they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. It is a reminder that it really does matter how we live. And it's good for us to hear that every now and then, isn't it? Because sometimes when we look at the evil in our world, it just seems so prevalent and so pervasive, and we wonder, you know, will it ever change? Yes, it will. There is a day coming when God will root out of this world all of the evil that is present here. Sometimes we get discouraged and we look at our own life or the things that we're trying to do as we live for Christ at work or in our neighborhood or community or wherever God may have placed us and we wonder, am I making any kind of a difference at all? And there are many, many voices in our world saying things like, live for today. Go ahead. You can do it. Follow the way of the world. You deserve it. You deserve these things. Who's going to know? And in the midst of all of those voices, we need to discern and listen to the voice of truth. And we find that here in God's Word. That's why this passage is important for us as believers to understand. This passage is Paul's charge to Timothy to be a man of God. And it doesn't just apply to men. The word that's used here for men it really refers to mankind in general, to men and women. And it's not just for pastors or missionaries. It is a charge for all of us to become men and women of courage and faith. The question is, how do we do that? How do we become a man of God or a woman of faith? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray that you would teach us today as we seek to become the kind of person that you can use. Help us to hear your word and to put it into practice in our life. Amen. Paul begins this passage in verse 11 by saying, But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. He tells us the first thing that we need to do if we are to become a person of faith is to flee from sin. We need to turn away from it, run away from it even as Paul describes it here. You see, there is no other way to become a man of God other than to deal with the sin that is in our life. And it is not something that we do once and it's done. It is a continual battle because we live in a fallen world and there are temptations that can come to us every day. 
The word Paul uses is a strong word, suggesting that we run from it or turn away actively from the sin and the temptations that face us. And I would ask you to think about your own life. What are those areas or what is maybe that one area in particular where Satan seems to trip you up? Is it in your thought life? Is it in your speech? Is it with worry or anxiety? Is it with uh, depression as you uh, struggle with things in your life? Is it an area of greed or materialism? Whatever it may be, I'd ask you to think about that. Where is it that Satan seems to afflict you? And then do you have a strategy to deal with that? Have you thought through how you are going to resist the evil one as he comes to you with temptations? In Romans 12.9, the Bible says that we are to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. We are to see sin for what it is and to see it the way that God sees it as well rather than trying to see how close we can get to sin without really sinning or crossing the line. We need to guard our heart and our mind and guard our eyes and what we put into our mind because all of that will make a difference in our walk with God. J.I. Packer made this comment about Chuck Holson a number of years ago that I think is really interesting. He said of Chuck Holson that he is a man who has come to perceive what a Puritan once called the evil of evil and the sinfulness of sin. He was talking about Chuck Holson's writings and how in many of them he's very prophetic as he speaks about things going on in our world or in our culture. And when he described them in that way, I think that's a very good place to be, that all of us would want to come to that point where we recognize evil as evil and we see the sinfulness of sin. Where we see that all sin hurts And all sin is rebellion against a holy God. Where we see that our sin will show itself in different ways. It shows itself in greed or violence or lust or envy or pride or bitterness and deceit. And where we see that our sin is responsible for all of the wars and violence and injustice and pain and sorrow in our world. This past week I was having breakfast with some men and a couple of them were veterans who had served in wars long ago. And one of those veterans made the comment this morning or that morning, he said, you know, as long as there are two people in this world, it seems like there'll be war. It was a recognition that the problem is in us. I mean, it started when sin entered into the garden and one generation later a man murders his brother. And that conflict between Cain and Abel has been going on ever since. It is the basic problem of man, and it is deadly. But the person God uses has learned to say no to sin by the power of God. You see, this is a battle that we can't fight in our own strength alone. We need to be changed by the Spirit of God, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit within us to resist sin in our life. And when we do that, sin no longer rules our life anymore because we belong to Christ and we have been changed. And it doesn't mean that we aren't going to stumble along the way or have struggles. It is a continual battle. But the decisive victory has been won by Jesus Christ and we have been changed. Secondly, if we are to become a man of God or a woman of faith, we need to follow Christ. And we see that in the second half of this verse. 
Paul urges Timothy to pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love, endurance and gentleness. That word pursue is also a strong word. And it too is a continuous action. It's not a one-time thing. It means for the rest of your life, I want you to pursue these things, these qualities in your life. It means to seek them, to run after them. You see, godliness is never one-sided. It's not enough to just turn away from something or to try and live a moral life. We must also turn towards something. We turn away from sin to Jesus Christ. You see, there are many people in our world that are moral and who may abide by the laws of our government as best as they can, but that doesn't make a person godly. Godliness comes as we pursue these qualities. A godly person is one who pursues righteousness. In other words, doing what is right in the sight of God. They pursue godliness. They are growing and becoming more and more like Christ in their thoughts and words and deeds. They are pursuing faith and using faith as a muscle in their life, trusting God and growing stronger. We are to pursue love, a love for God and for others so that people can see the change that He has made in us. We are to practice endurance, which means having patience or perseverance when life is hard and we have to walk through trials or valleys. We do it with God with us. And we pursue gentleness. The word gentleness here is the same word as meekness. And it means strength under control. It means when you are in a conflict and you might feel like lashing out at that other person, you don't. And you respond with gentleness and kindness and patience and self-control. It means having control over your tongue and control over your actions because of Christ in you. Those are good things. So how do we pursue these things consistently? Well, if you were to take, for example, if you were an athlete and you said your goal was to run a mile in four minutes, wow, that's not something you can just do and you know show up on the day of the meet and think that you're going to run that four-minute mile. You have to train for it. And you have to have, literally, a certain amount of God-given ability to be able to do that. And you need others who are going to help you. You need a coach because you need to train hard and smart and you need somebody who's gone this way before who can help you. And you need others to run with you in this race because you know there are going to be days when you're training that you're not going to feel like running or you're going to be discouraged and somebody's going to need to be there to hold you accountable and to lift you up. And the same thing is true spiritually. If our goal is to be a man of God or a woman of faith, then we literally need a God-given ability to do that too. We need to be born again by the Spirit of God or none of this is possible. But even when we have been born again and have Christ in our life, the Bible tells us that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who's at work within us. And so we need to work in our faith. We need to be people that are in the Word and in prayer regularly, consistently. We need a coach. We call them disciple-makers or small group leaders who work with us to help us teach and train us. They are older Christians who can serve as a mentor and walk with us and we can learn from their example. 
We need other believers to run this race with us. We need a small group of believers who will pray for us, hold us accountable, and encourage us when life is hard. That's why you've heard me say many times and why we've emphasized in our church that we want all of us as adults to be in a small group where we are growing and learning with other believers. And we need a church. A church where we can grow and learn and worship and serve or we will never grow in our faith. This past week I was reading in my quiet time about a man named A.W. Tozer. Many of you have probably heard of him. He was one of the great pastors in the last century and he wrote some pretty amazing books. The Pursuit of God and the Knowledge of the Holy are two classics that have had a profound impact on many Christians. What you may not know is his personal story or how he came to grow in his own relationship with God. He was born on a farm in 1897 and he had to drop out of school after sixth grade because his dad had a chronic illness that did not allow him to continue to work the farm. And so Tozer had to stay at home and do the work for his dad. Here was a man who only had a sixth grade education and yet God used him mightily. One day when he was walking home from work, uh, he saw a street preacher. And that street preacher called out to him and challenged him and said, if you were to die today, do you know where you'd spend eternity? And he honestly didn't know. And he challenged him to trust in Christ. And Tozer answered and said, I will think about it. And over the next few years he did. He found a place in their basement behind the furnace where there was a little nook that became, in a sense, his study or prayer closet. And he would go down there and he spent hours in that little hideaway reading the scriptures and praying. And he came to place his faith in Jesus Christ. As he began to grow, he found a church where he could study and learn with other believers. And at that church, there was an older woman who had a library of good Christian books and she began to loan them to Tozer and Tozer devoured them one by one. He began to preach himself on the sidewalks and another pastor met him and there were pastors who came into his life who were part of the Christian Missionary Alliance Church and he began to disciple and mentor this young man. Until at age, or in 1928, God called Tozer to pastor a church on the south side of Chicago where he would stay for 31 years. Tozer had a natural gift for communication and he excelled as a preacher and as a writer. And when he died on May 12, 1963, God had made him a man of many words, but the epitaph on his tombstone read simply, A Man of God. A.W. Tozer had become a man of God. If we desire to become that kind of person in our life, then there's no shortcut to it. But we need to do the very same things that a man like Tozer did, where you commit yourself to Christ and you study the Scriptures and you pray and you seek out other believers of like-minded faith. He needed to find a church. He needed to be mentored by others who would take him under their wing and disciple him. We need that too, to grow in our relationship with Christ. We need to flee from sin. We need to follow Christ. Thirdly, we need to fight 
the good fight of faith. Look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith, Paul writes, and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The contrast between the words gentleness at the end of verse 11 and the word fight at the beginning of verse 12 is jarring. I mean, you read that through and on the one side, Paul is saying that we need to be people that are gentle. And in the very next verse, he's saying, I want you to fight. How do you do that? How do you do that as a Christian? Be both gentle and yet fight as though you are in a battle. Who or what are we to fight? Well, he goes on to tell us things like this. We are to fight the good fight of our faith. And that means things like this. We are to fight against sin and the evil in our world. We are to fight against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. The Bible tells us we are to fight against things like doubt or the weakness of our flesh. And we are to fight for the faith of the Gospel, contending as one man for the sake of the Gospel. The word fight here in Greek is the word agonizo or agonize. Literally it reads, agonize the good agony. I like that. I get that picture in my mind. Have you ever been involved in an athletic competition where you just gave it everything you had and at the end you were just exhausted because you had given your all? Have you ever run a race like that? When you crossed the finish line, you had nothing left to give because you had run that race well. Or have you ever labored at physical labor in such a way that at the end of the day when you laid down to go to sleep that night, it just felt so good? Because you were spent. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, Timothy, give it all you've got. Run the race to the end. That's how we are to live our faith to the end of our days, following Jesus Christ and fighting this good fight of the faith. We are to stand up against the evil in our world and the sin that tempts us in our life and follow Jesus Christ. Such a commitment can be costly. This past week I was reading again the story of Todd Beamer the young man that was aboard Flight 93 on that fateful day of September 11, 2001. Most of you know the story about Todd and his wife who had gone to Wheaton College. They were Christians. He was a young man in his early 30s, just starting their family, just starting their career. Lisa was five months pregnant on that morning with their third child when Todd said goodbye and headed to the airport in Newark, New Jersey. About 90 minutes into that westbound flight, the hijackers on board identified themselves and took control of that plane. There were 34 passengers and seven crew members on board. The plane, now piloted by the would-be terrorists, made a sharp turn to the south. And Todd reached for the airphone that was on the back of the seat in front of him. He was connected to a GTE supervisor on the ground and he explained to her what was happening and he indicated that he and other passengers would not likely survive. He presumed the pilot and the co-pilot were already seriously injured or dead. The GTE employee explained to Todd what had already happened at the World Trade Center in the Pentagon. 
And upon hearing this news, Todd realized that the hijackers were intent on crashing the plane, most likely into another prominent building near Washington, D.C., the direction that they were now headed. And even though the hijacker nearest Todd had what appeared to be a bomb belted around his middle, this young man and the others who sat by him were determined not to let this happen. They were going to do whatever they could to disrupt the terrorist plan. He then asked the person on the other end of the phone to call his wife and report their entire conversation to her. And before hanging up, he asked this GTE employee if she would pray with him. And together they prayed the Lord's Prayer. With the sound of passengers screaming in the background, she complied. And when they concluded their prayer, Todd calmly said, Help me, God. Help me, Jesus. And then the employee heard Todd say to the other businessmen, Are you guys ready? Let's roll. And within a few minutes, Flight 93 was nosediving into a rural field somewhere in western Pennsylvania. It took courage to do what Todd did that morning and the other men who were with him to confront the evil in our world. That's a pretty dramatic example. But I want you to know that it takes courage to live for Christ right where we are. I think of students in our schools. When there are temptations to follow the crowd and to do something that would be dishonoring to Christ, it takes courage to say no and to live for Him and to choose to do the right thing. And I think people, when I think of people in our church who have gone on mission trips, or who work in our prison ministry, who work with the poor and homeless in neighborhoods that aren't safe, in the inner city. It takes courage to step out of our comfort zone and to do those things that may be risky, but we do them for the sake of Christ. It takes courage to confront the evil in our world, the evils of pornography or racism or poverty or abortion or drug and alcohol abuse or gambling and immorality. It takes courage when those things can seem so prevalent and so pervasive. And we seem so small. And yet by God's power, we can bring change. And it takes courage to admit when we have a problem in our own life with sin and we need help to overcome it. It takes courage to admit that to someone else and ask them to pray or to help you. But it's something that all of us need to do if we are to grow in Christ-likeness and godliness and become an example to others. And I would ask you this morning, is there anything that you are struggling with in your life that needs to be given to God and needs to change? Maybe there's someone that you need to talk to today about that. What is it that God wants you to do? And fourth, we need to fix our eyes on the goal. And we see that in verses 12 to 16. Paul said, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of that eternal life. It too is a strong action word. It means hang on to it like a man who's in a tug-of-war contest who's not going to let go of the rope until the contest is over. To take hold of something is more than just knowing that heaven is ahead. To take hold of it, we need to meditate on the truth of that in the Scriptures. 
I mean, do you know what heaven is going to be like? And is that a hope that changes your life today and is real to you? You see, some people have such a weak idea of what heaven is. Some people think that it's just going to be one long church service. And they they go, you know, I've been to some church services that seemed a little boring and that's not too exciting to them. And some people think of heaven as though we're going to be sitting around with harps playing them for all of eternity, sitting on the clouds. And that's not reality. That's not what heaven is going to be like. When you start to study the Scriptures... And you realize what God says there. You realize that one day heaven and earth will be one and that God will dwell among us. And we will be with Him and He will be our God and we will be His people. We begin to understand that God's going to recreate this earth. And that one day there will be no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death. We will be reunited with loved ones who have gone before us in the Lord. We will have all of eternity to do those things that we long to do in this life, but maybe we just didn't have time. If this world is beautiful, how much greater will that new world be? And in that world, there will be learning because God is infinite and we are finite. And there will be beauty and joy and adventure and discovery and satisfaction far beyond what we can imagine. And most of all, we will be with Jesus, the one who makes this all possible. That's why Paul goes on to say in this passage that in the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which God will bring about in His own time. How long are we to hold on? We are to hold on until Jesus comes or He calls us home. And we are also to remember the One who we serve. Listen to how Paul describes Him. We serve the only God. God, the blessed and only Ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to Him be honor and might forever and ever. God is the blessed and only ruler. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And here that title is applied to God the Father. In the book of Revelation, it is applied to God the Son as another evidence that Jesus Christ is God. They are sovereign. They rule over everything that happens in our world and in our life. And to God alone belongs the honor and the might, power forever and ever. Amen. So what is God asking of us today? He is asking that we be people who are faithful until the end of our days. That we will choose to fight this good fight of faith and follow Jesus Christ. He calls us to run the race that is set before us, the path that He has put in front of us, and to run that race with faith and courage and joy and strength, giving it all we've got. And thirdly, He calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus and the hope that we have because of Him. It is a choice that each of us must make daily to put our hope in Him. Let's pray. 
Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you change us and enable us to do that. Give us a passion and a joy to walk with you all the days of our life and to follow you. To live our lives in a way that does count for eternity and to make a difference in our world. Father, if there are things that you know, we or anyone here today is struggling with in their life, if there's a sin issue that needs to be dealt with, Lord, we ask for your grace and courage to do that too. To find the help that we might need so that we can walk with you in joy and holiness and unity. We pray this in your name.